book two chapter one of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards upon this they both looked at me and signified their readiness to hear me so i began first of all i beg of you not to imagine that i am going to deliver you a formal lecture like a professional philosopher that is a procedure which even in the case of philosophers i have never very much approved socrates who is entitled to be styled the father of philosophy never did anything of the sort it was the method of his contemporaries the sophists as they were called it was one of the sophists gorgias of leontini who first ventured in an assembly to invite a question that is to ask any one to state what subject he desired to hear discussed a bold undertaking indeed i should call it a piece of effrontery had not this custom later on passed over into our own school but we see that socrates made fun of the aforesaid gorgias and the rest of the sophists also as we can learn from plato his own way was to question his interlocutors and by a process of cross-examination to elicit their opinions so that he might express his own views by way of rejoinder to their answers this practice was abandoned by his successors but was afterwards revived by arcesilaus who made it a rule that those who wished to hear him should not ask him questions but should state their own opinions and when they had done so he argued against them but whereas the pupils of arcesilaus did their best to defend their own position with the rest of the philosophers the student who has put a question is then silent and indeed this is nowadays the custom in the academy too the would-be learner says for example the chief good in my opinion is pleasure and the contrary is then maintained in a formal discourse so that it is not hard to realize that those who say they are of a certain opinion do not actually hold the view they profess but want to hear what can be argued against it we are adopting a more profitable mode of procedure for torquatus has not only told us his own opinion but also his reasons for holding it still for my part though i enjoyed his long discourse very much i believe all the same that it is better to stop at point after point and make out what each person is willing to admit and what he denies and then to draw such inferences as one desires from these admissions and so arrive at one's conclusion when the exposition goes rushing on like a mountain stream in spate it carries along with it a vast amount of miscellaneous material but there is nothing one can take hold of or rescue from the flood there is no point at which one can stem the torrent of oratory however in philosophical investigation a methodical and systematic discourse must always begin by formulating a preamble like that which occurs in certain forms of process at law this shall be the point at issue so that the parties to the debate may be agreed as to what the subject is about which they are debating chapter two this rule is laid down by plato in the phaedrus and it was approved by epicurus who realized that it ought to be followed in every discussion but he failed to see what this involved for he says that he does not hold with giving a definition of the thing in question yet without this it is sometimes impossible for the disputants to agree what the subject under discussion is 
as, for example, in the case of the very question we are now debating. We are trying to discover the end of goods, but how can we possibly know what the nature of this is without comparing notes as to what we mean in the phrase and of goods, by the term and, and also by the term good itself? Now, this process of disclosing latent meanings, of revealing what a particular thing is, is the process of definition, and you yourself now and then unconsciously employed it, for you repeatedly defined this very conception of the end, or final, or ultimate aim as, that to which all right actions are a means, while it is not itself a means to anything else. Excellent so far. Very likely, had occasion arisen, you would have defined the good itself, either as, the naturally desirable, or the beneficial, or the delightful, or just that which we like. Well then, if you don't mind, as you do not entirely disapprove of definition, and indeed practice it when it suits your purpose, I should be glad if you would now define pleasure, the thing which is the subject of the whole of our present inquiry. Dear me, cried Torquatus, who is there who does not know what pleasure is? Who needs a definition to assist him to understand it? I should say that I myself was such a person, I replied. Did I not believe that, as a matter of fact, I do fully understand the nature of pleasure, and possess a well-founded conception and comprehension of it? As it is, I venture to assert that Epicurus himself does not know what pleasure is, but is in two minds about it. He is always harping on the necessity of carefully sifting out the meaning underlying the terms we employ, and yet he occasionally fails to understand what is the import of the word pleasure, that is, what is the thing that underlies the word? Chapter 3 Torquatus laughed. Come, that is a good joke, he said, that the author of the doctrine that pleasure is the end of things desirable, the final and ultimate good, should actually not know what manner of thing pleasure itself is. Well, I replied, either Epicurus does not know what pleasure is, or the rest of mankind, all the world over, do not. How so? he asked. Because the universal opinion is that pleasure is a sensation actively stimulating the percipient sense and diffusing over it a certain agreeable feeling. What then? he replied. Does not Epicurus recognize pleasure in your sense? Not always, said I. Now and then, I admit, he is only too well acquainted with it, for he solemnly avows that he cannot even understand what good there can be or where it can be found, apart from that which is derived from food and drink, the delight of the ears, and the grosser forms of gratification. Do I misrepresent his words? Just as if I were ashamed of all that, he cried, or unable to explain the sense in which it is spoken. Oh, said I, I haven't the least doubt you can explain it with ease, and you have no reason to be ashamed of sharing the opinions of a wise man, who stands alone, so far as I am aware, in venturing to arrogate to himself that title. For I do not suppose that Metrodarus himself claimed to be a wise man, though he did not care to refuse the compliment when the name was bestowed upon him by Epicurus, while the seven wise men of old received their appellation not by their own votes, but by the universal suffrages of mankind. Still, for the present, I take it for granted 
that in the utterance in question epicurus undoubtedly recognizes the same meaning of pleasure as everybody else everyone uses the greek word hedone and the latin voluptas to mean an agreeable and exhilarating stimulation of the sense well then he asked what more do you want i will tell you i said though more for the sake of ascertaining the truth than from any desire to criticize yourself or epicurus i also he replied would much rather learn anything you may have to contribute than criticize your views do you remember then i said what hieronymus of rhodes pronounces to be the chief good the standard as he conceives it to which all other things should be referred i remember said he that he considers the end to be freedom from pain well said i what is the same philosopher's view about pleasure he thinks that pleasure is not desirable in itself then in his opinion to feel pleasure is a different thing from not feeling pain yes he said and there he is seriously mistaken since as i have just shown the complete removal of pain is the limit of the increase of pleasure oh i said as for the formula freedom from pain i will consider its meaning later on but unless you are extraordinarily obstinate you are bound to admit that freedom from pain does not mean the same as pleasure well but on this point you will find me obstinate said he for it is as true as any proposition can be pray said i when a man is thirsty is there any pleasure in the act of drinking that is undeniable he answered is it the same pleasure as the pleasure of having quenched one's thirst no it is a different kind of pleasure for the pleasure of having quenched one's thirst is a static pleasure but the pleasure of actually quenching it is a kinetic pleasure why then i asked do you call two such different things by the same name do you not remember he replied what i said just now that when all pain has been removed pleasure may vary in kind but cannot be increased in degree oh yes i remember said i but though your language was quite correct in form your meaning was far from clear variation is a good latin term we use it strictly of different colors but it is applied metaphorically to a number of things that differ we speak of a varied poem a varied speech a varied character varied fortunes pleasure too can be termed varied when it is derived from a number of unlike things producing unlike feelings of pleasure if this were the variation you spoke of i could understand the term just as i understand it even without your speaking of it but i cannot quite grasp what you mean by variation when you say that when we are free from pain we experience the highest pleasure and that when we are enjoying things that excite a pleasant activity of the senses we then experience an active or kinetic pleasure that causes a variation of our pleasant sensations but no increase in the former pleasure that consists in absence of pain although why you should call this pleasure i cannot make out chapter four well he asked can anything be more pleasant than freedom from pain still i replied granting there is nothing better that point i waive for the moment surely it does not therefore follow that what i may call the negation of pain is the same thing as pleasure absolutely the same said he indeed the negation of pain is a very intense pleasure the most intense pleasure possible if then said i according to your account 
the chief good consists entirely in feeling no pain, why do you not keep to this without wavering? Why do you not firmly maintain this conception of the good and no other? What need is there to introduce so abandoned a character as mistress pleasure into the company of those respectable ladies the virtues? Her very name is suspect, and lies under a cloud of disrepute, so much so that you Epicureans are fond of telling us that we do not understand what Epicurus means by pleasure. I am a reasonably good-tempered disputant, but for my own part, when I hear this assertion, and I have encountered it fairly often, I am sometimes inclined to be a little irritated. Do I not understand the meaning of the Greek word hedone, the Latin voluptas? Pray, which of these two languages is it that I am not acquainted with? Moreover, how comes it that I do not know what the word means, while all and sundry who have elected to be Epicureans do? As for that, your sect argues, very plausibly, that there is no need for the aspirant to philosophy to be a scholar at all, and you are as good as your word. Our ancestors brought old Cincinnatus from the plough to be dictator. You ransack the country villages for your assemblage of doubtless respectable, but certainly not very learned adherents. Well, if these gentlemen can understand what Epicurus means, cannot I? I will prove to you that I do. In the first place, I mean the same by pleasure as he does by hedone. One often has some trouble to discover a Latin word that shall be the precise equivalent of a Greek one, but in this case no search was necessary. No instance can be found of a Latin word that more exactly conveys the same meaning as the corresponding Greek word than does the word voluptas. Every person in the world who knows Latin attaches to this word two ideas, that of gladness of mind and that of a delightful excitation of agreeable feeling in the body. On the one hand, there is the character in Trabea, who speaks of excessive pleasure of the mind, meaning gladness, the same feeling as is intended by the person in Caecilius, who describes himself as being glad with every sort of gladness. But there is this difference, that the word pleasure can denote a mental as well as a bodily feeling, the former a vicious emotion in the opinion of the Stoics, who define it as elation of the mind under an irrational conviction that it is enjoying some great good, whereas joy and gladness are not used of bodily sensation. However, pleasure, according to the usage of all who speak good Latin, consists in the enjoyment of a delightful stimulation of one of the senses. The term delight, also, you may apply, if you like, to the mind. To delight is said of both mind and body, and from it the adjective delightful is derived. So long as you understand that between the man who says, So full am I of gladness that I am all confusion, and him who says, Now, now my soul with anger burns, one of whom is transported with gladness, and the other tormented with painful emotion, there is the intermediate state, though our acquaintanceship is but quite recent, where the speaker feels neither gladness nor sorrow, and that, similarly, between the enjoyment of the most desirable bodily pleasures and the endurance of the most excruciating pains, there is the neutral state devoid of either. CHAPTER five. Well, are you satisfied that I have grasped the meaning of the terms, 
or do I still require lessons in the use of either Greek or Latin? And even supposing that I do not understand what Epicurus says, still I believe I really have a very clear knowledge of Greek, so that perhaps it is partly his fault for using such unintelligible language. Obscurity is excusable on two grounds. It may be deliberately adopted, as in the case of Heraclitus, the surname of the obscure who bore so dark his philosophic lore, or the obscurity may be due to the abstruseness of the subject and not of the style. An instance of this is Plato's Timaeus. But Epicurus, in my opinion, has no intention of not speaking plainly and clearly if he can, nor is he discussing a recondite subject like natural philosophy, nor a technical subject such as mathematics, but a lucid and easy topic, and one that is generally familiar already. And yet you Epicureans do not deny that we understand what pleasure is, but what he means by it which proves not that we do not understand the real meaning of the word, but that Epicurus is speaking an idiom of his own and ignoring our accepted terminology. For if he means the same as Hieronymus, who holds that the chief good is a life entirely devoid of trouble, why does he insist on using the term pleasure, and not rather freedom from pain, as does Hieronymus, who understands his own meaning? whereas if his view is that the end must include kinetic pleasure, for so he describes this vivid sort of pleasure, calling it kinetic in contrast with the pleasure of freedom from pain, which is static pleasure, what is he really aiming at? For he cannot possibly convince any person who knows himself, anyone who has studied his own nature and sensations, that freedom from pain is the same thing as pleasure. To identify them, Torquatus, is to do violence to the senses. It is uprooting from our minds the knowledge of the meaning of words embedded in them. Who is not aware that the world of experience contains these three states of feeling? First, the enjoyment of pleasure, second, the sensation of pain, and third, which is my own condition, and doubtless also yours at the present moment, the absence of both pleasure and pain pleasure is the feeling of a man eating a good dinner, pain that of one being broken on the rack. But do you really not see that intermediate between those two extremes lies a vast multitude of persons who are feeling neither gratification nor pain? I certainly do not, said he. I maintain that all who are without pain are enjoying pleasure, and, what is more, the highest form of pleasure. Then you think that a man who, not being himself thirsty, mixes a drink for another, feels the same pleasure as the thirsty man who drinks it? Chapter 6. At this, Torquatus exclaimed, A truce to question and answer, if you do not mind. I told you from the beginning that I preferred continuous speeches. I foresaw exactly what would happen. I knew we should come to logic-chopping and quibbling. Then, said I, would you sooner we adopted the rhetorical and not the dialectical mode of debate? Why, he cried, just as if continuous discourse were proper for orators only, and not for philosophers as well. That is the view of Zeno, the Stoic, I rejoined. He used to say that the faculty of speech in general falls into two departments, as Aristotle had already laid down, and that rhetoric was like the palm of the hand, dialectic like the closed fist, 
because rhetoricians employ an expansive style and dialecticians one that is more compressed so i will defer to your wish and will speak if i can in the rhetorical manner but with the rhetoric of the philosophers not with the sort which we use in the law courts the latter being addressed to the public ear must necessarily sometimes be a little lacking in subtlety epicurus however torquatus in his contempt for dialectic which comprises at once the entire science of discerning the essence of things of judging their qualities and of conducting a systematic and logical argument epicurus i say makes havoc of his exposition he entirely fails in my opinion at all events to impart scientific precision to the doctrines he desires to convey take for example the particular tenet we have just been discussing the chief good is pleasure say you epicureans well then you must explain what pleasure is otherwise it is impossible to make clear the subject under investigation had epicurus cleared up the meaning of pleasure he would not have fallen into such confusion either he would have upheld pleasure in the same sense as aristippus that is an agreeable and delightful excitation of the sense which is what even dumb cattle if they could speak would call pleasure or if he preferred to use an idiom of his own instead of speaking the language of the danaeans one and all men of mycenae scions of athens and the rest of the greeks invoked in these anapests he might have confined the name of pleasure to this state of freedom from pain and despised pleasure as aristippus understands it or else if he approved of both sorts of pleasure as in fact he does then he ought to combine together pleasure and absence of pain and profess two ultimate goods many distinguished philosophers have as a matter of fact thus interpreted the ultimate good as composite for instance aristotle combined the exercise of virtue with well-being lasting throughout a complete lifetime califo united pleasure with moral worth diodorus to moral worth added freedom from pain epicurus would have followed their example had he coupled the view we are discussing which as it is belongs to hieronymus with the old doctrine of aristippus for there is a real difference of opinion between them and accordingly each sets up his own separate end and as both speak unimpeachable greek aristippus who calls pleasure the chief good does not count absence of pain as pleasure while hieronymus who makes the chief good absence of pain never employs the name pleasure to denote this negation of pain and in fact does not reckon pleasure among things desirable at all chapter seven for you must not suppose it is merely a verbal distinction the things themselves are different to be without pain is one thing to feel pleasure another yet you epicureans try to combine these quite dissimilar feelings not merely under a single name for that i can more easily tolerate but as actually being a single thing instead of really two which is absolutely impossible epicurus approving both sorts of pleasure ought to have recognized both sorts as he really does in fact though he does not distinguish them in words in a number of passages where he is commending that real pleasure which all of us call by the same name he goes so far as to say that he cannot even imagine any good that is not connected with pleasure of the kind intended by aristippus 
this is the language that he holds in the discourse dealing solely with the topic of the chief good then there is another treatise containing his most important doctrines in a compendious form in which we are told he uttered the very oracles of wisdom here he writes the following words with which you torquatus are of course familiar for every good epicurean has got by heart the masters curiae doxi or authoritative doctrines since these brief aphorisms or maxims are held to be of sovereign efficacy for happiness so i will ask you kindly to notice whether i translate this maxim correctly if the things in which sensualists find pleasure could deliver them from the fear of the gods and of death and pain and could teach them to set bounds to their desires we should have no reason to blame them since on every hand they would be abundantly supplied with pleasures and on no side would be exposed to any pain or grief which are the sole evil at this point triarius could contain himself no longer seriously now torquatus he broke out does epicurus really say that for my own part i believe that he knew it to be true but wanted to hear torquatus admit it torquatus nothing daunted answered with complete assurance certainly those are his very words but you don't understand his meaning oh i retorted if he means one thing and says another i never shall understand his meaning but he does not he states the case clearly as he understands it if his meaning is that sensualists are not to be blamed provided they are wise men he is talking nonsense he might as well say that parricides are not to be blamed provided they are free from avarice and from fear of the gods of death and of pain even so what is the point of granting the sensual any saving clause why imagine certain fictitious persons who though living sensually would not be blamed by the wisest of philosophers at all events for their sensuality and to avoid other faults all the same epicurus would not you blame sensualists for the very reason that their one object in life is the pursuit of pleasure of any and every sort especially as according to you the highest pleasure is to feel no pain yet we shall find profligates in the first place so devoid of religious scruples that they will eat the food on the paten and secondly so fearless of death as to be always quoting the lines from the humnis enough for me six months of life the seventh to hell i pledge or if they want an antidote to pain out comes from their medicine chest the great epicurean panacea short if it's strong light if it's long only one point i can't make out how can a man at once be essentialist and keep his desires within bounds chapter eight what then is the point of saying i should have no fault to find with them if they kept their desires within bounds that is tantamount to saying i should not blame the profligate if they were not profligate on that principle you would not blame the dishonest either if they were upright men here is a rigid moralist who thinks that sensuality is not in itself blameworthy and i profess torquatus on the hypothesis that pleasure is the chief good he is perfectly justified in thinking so i had rather not draw disgusting pictures as you are so fond of doing of debauchees who are sick at table have to be carried home from dinner parties and next day gorge themselves again before they have recovered from the effects of the night before 
men who, as the saying goes, have never seen either sunset or sunrise, men who run through their inheritance and sink into penury. None of us supposes that profligates of that description live pleasantly. No, but fastidious gourmets, with first-rate chefs and confectioners, fish, birds, game, and all of the very best, careful of their digestion, with wine in flask, decanted from a new-broached cask, as Lucilius has it, wine of tang bereft, a harshness in the strainer left, with the accompaniment of dramatic performances in their usual sequel, the pleasures apart from which Epicurus, as he loudly proclaims, does not know what good is, give them also beautiful boys to wait upon them, with drapery, silver, Corinthian bronzes, and the scene of the feast, the banqueting-room, all in keeping. Take profligates of this sort, that these live well or enjoy happiness, I will never allow. The conclusion is, not that pleasure is not pleasure, but that pleasure is not the chief good. The famous Lilius, who had been a pupil of Diogenes the Stoic in his youth, and later of Panaetius, was not called the wise because he was no judge of good eating for a wise mind is not necessarily incompatible with a nice palate, but because he set little store by it. Dinner of herbs, how all the earth derides thee and ignores thy worth, though Lilius, our old Roman sage, shouted thy praises to the age, our gourmands, one by one arraigning. Bravo, Lilius, sage indeed, how true too the lines! Oh, bottomless gulf of gluttony! Publius Galanius cried he, You're a poor devil, truth to tell, who never in your life dined well, no, never once, although you pay a fortune for a fish away, lobster or sturgeon, Brobdingnagian. The speaker is a man who, setting no value on pleasure, declares that he who makes pleasure his all in all cannot dine well. Observe, he does not say, Galanius never dined pleasantly which would be untrue, but never well. So strict and severe is the distinction he draws between pleasure and good. The conclusion is that though all who dine well dine pleasantly, yet he who dines pleasantly does not necessarily dine well. Lilius always dined well. What does well mean? Lucilius shall say. Well cooked, well seasoned. Ah, but now the principal dish with a deal of honest talk, and the result, a pleasant meal. For he came to dinner, that with mind at ease he might satisfy the wants of nature. Lilius is right, therefore, in denying that Galanius ever dined well, right in calling him unhappy, and that too, although all his thoughts were centred on the pleasures of the table. No one will deny that he dined pleasantly. Then why not well? because well implies rightly, respectably, worthily, whereas Galanius dined wrongly, disreputably, basely, therefore he did not dine well. It was not that Lilius thought his dinner of herbs more palatable than Galanius's sturgeon, but that he disregarded the pleasures of the palate altogether, and this he could not have done had he made the chief good consist in pleasure. Chapter 9. Consequently, you are bound to discard pleasure, 
not merely if you are to guide your conduct aright but even if you are to be able consistently to use the language of respectable people can we possibly therefore call a thing the chief good with regard to living when we feel we cannot call it so even in regard to dining but how says our philosopher the desires are of three kinds natural and necessary natural but not necessary neither natural nor necessary to begin with this is a clumsy division it makes three classes when there are really only two this is not dividing but hacking in pieces thinkers trained in the science which epicurus despised usually put it thus the desires are of two kinds natural and imaginary natural desires again fall into two subdivisions necessary and not necessary that would have rounded it off properly it is a fault in division to reckon a species as a genus still do not let us stickle about form epicurus despises the niceties of dialectic he affects a careless style we must humour him in this provided that his meaning is correct but for my own part i cannot cordially approve i merely tolerate a philosopher who talks of setting bounds to the desires is it possible for desire to be kept within bounds it ought to be destroyed uprooted altogether on your principle there is no form of desire whose possessor could not be morally approved he will be a miser within limits an adulterer in moderation a sensualist to the same extent what sort of a philosophy is this that instead of dealing wickedness its death-blow is satisfied with moderating our vices albeit i quite approve the substance of this classification it is the form of it to which i take exception let him speak of the first class as the needs of nature and keep the term desire for another occasion to be put on trial for its life when he comes to deal with avarice intemperance and all the major vices this classification of the desires is then a subject on which epicurus is fond of enlarging not that i find fault with him for that we expect so great and famous a philosopher to maintain his dogmas boldly but he often seems unduly eager to approve of pleasure in the common acceptation of the term for this occasionally lands him in a very awkward position it conveys the impression that there is no action so base but that he would be ready to commit it for the sake of pleasure provided he were guaranteed against detection afterwards put to the blush by this conclusion for the force of natural instinct after all is overwhelming he turns for refuge to the assertion that nothing can enhance the pleasure of freedom from pain oh but we urge your static condition of feeling no pain is not what is termed pleasure at all i don't trouble about the name he replies well but the thing itself is absolutely different oh i can find hundreds and thousands of people less precise and tiresome than yourselves who will be glad to accept as true anything i like to teach them then why do we not go a step further and argue that if not to feel pain is the highest pleasure therefore not to feel pleasure is the greatest pain why does not this hold good because the opposite of pain is not pleasure but absence of pain chapter ten but fancy his feeling to see how strong a proof it is that the sort of pleasure without which he declares he has no idea at all what good means and he defines it in detail as the pleasure of the palate of the ears 
and subjoins the other kinds of pleasure which cannot be specified without an apology he fails i say to see that this the sole good with which our strict and serious philosopher is acquainted is actually not even desirable inasmuch as on his own showing we feel no need of this sort of pleasure so long as we are free from pain how inconsistent this is if only epicurus had studied definition and division if he understood the meaning of predication or even the customary uses of terms he would never have fallen into such a quandary as it is you see what he does he calls a thing pleasure that no one ever called by that name before he confounds two things that are distinct the kinetic sort of pleasure for so he terms the delightful and so to speak sweet-flavoured pleasures we are considering at one moment he so disparages that you would think you were listening to manius curius while at another moment he so extols it that he tells us he is incapable even of imagining what other good there can be now that is language that does not call for a philosopher to answer it it ought to be put down by the police his morality is at fault and not only his logic he does not censure profligacy provided it be free from unbridled desire and from fear of consequences here he seems to be making a bid for disciples the would-be roué need only turn philosopher for the origin of the chief good he goes back i understand to the birth of living things as soon as an animal is born it delights in pleasure and seeks it as a good but shuns pain as an evil creatures as yet uncorrupted are according to him the best judges of good and evil that is the position both as you expounded it and as it is expressed in the phraseology of your school what a mass of fallacies which kind of pleasure will it be that guides a mewling infant to distinguish between the chief good and evil static pleasure or kinetic since we learn our language heaven help us from epicurus if the static kind the natural instinct is clearly towards self-preservation as we agree but if the kinetic and this is what nevertheless you maintain then no pleasure will be too base to be accepted and also our new-born animal in this case does not find its earliest motive in the highest form of pleasure since this on your showing consists in absence of pain for this latter doctrine however epicurus cannot have gone to children nor yet to animals which according to him give a true reflection of nature he could hardly say that natural instinct guides the young to desire the pleasure of freedom from pain this cannot excite appetition the static condition of feeling no pain exerts no driving power supplies no impulse to the will so that hieronymus also is wrong here it is the positive sensation of pleasure and delight that furnishes a motive accordingly epicurus's standing argument to prove that pleasure is naturally desired is that infants and animals are attracted by the kinetic sort of pleasure not the static kind which consists merely in freedom from pain surely then it is inconsistent to say that natural instinct starts from one sort of pleasure but that the chief good is found in another chapter eleven as for the lower animals i set no value on their verdict their instincts may be wrong although we cannot say they are perverted one stick has been bent and twisted on purpose another has grown crooked similarly the nature of wild animals though not indeed corrupted by bad education is corrupt of its own nature 
again in the infant the natural instinct is not to seek pleasure its instinct is merely towards self-regard self-preservation and protection from injury every living creature from the moment of birth loves itself and all its members primarily this self-regard embraces the two main divisions of mind and body and subsequently the parts of each of these both mind and body have certain excellences of these the young animal grows vaguely conscious and later begins to discriminate and to seek for the primary endowments of nature and shun their opposites whether the list of these primary natural objects of desire includes pleasure or not is a much debated question but to hold that it includes nothing else but pleasure neither the limbs nor the senses nor mental activity nor bodily integrity nor health seems to me to be the height of stupidity and on one's view as to the objects of instinctive desire must depend one's whole theory of goods and evils polemo and also before him aristotle held that the primary objects were the ones i have just mentioned thus arose the doctrine of the old academy and of the peripatetics maintaining that the end of goods is to live in accordance with nature that is to enjoy the primary gifts of nature's bestowal with the accompaniment of virtue Calipho, coupled with virtue pleasure alone diodorus freedom from pain in the case of all the philosophers mentioned their end of goods logically follows with aristippus it is pleasure pure and simple with the stoics harmony with nature which they interpret as meaning virtuous or morally good life and further explain this as meaning to live with an understanding of the natural course of events selecting things that are in accordance with nature and rejecting the opposite thus there are three ends that do not include moral worth one that of aristippus or epicurus the second that of hieronymus and the third that of carneades three that comprise moral goodness together with some additional element those of polemo calipho and diodorus and one theory that is simple of which zeno was the author and which is based entirely on propriety that is on moral worth as for pyrrho arista and erilus they have long ago been exploded all of these but epicurus were consistent and made their final ends agree with their first principles aristippus holding the end to be pleasure hieronymus freedom from pain carneades the enjoyment of the primary natural objects end of chapter eleven of book two recording in memory of mitchell edwards